You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hattenmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Today, let's talk some more about frontier fighting, and this is going to be the grappling edition. Of course, this is a deep subject, but we're just kind of scratching the surface here. Uh, you could kind of pair this up with some of the other arrows of influence, historical work we've been discussing. I think we've done a recent podcast on uh, frontier fighting, the borders and no borders, and one uh, we talked about the Foreign Legion, Apaches and Combat Migrations. So this episode kind of twins well or pairs well with that triplet right there. Again, let's look to early American grappling as a case study to demonstrate how often assumed influences do not necessarily match some probable realities. Uh, to maybe help set the stage here, before we get to grappling as specific, let's look at the seeming, uh, the, the assumed causal error of all frontier development writ large. Uh, what I'm talking about here is the story of the United States' success. Usually it goes along these lines, and uh, yes, I am simplifying. One, uh, the American continent was a formless, cultureless land without its own web of applied technology, considered culture, and enlightened expertise. Then, immigrants, uh, read that as uh, white Europeans, uh, pioneers and settlers from Great Britain and the European continent arrive and whip a little democracy, a little culture, and a vast amount of European know-how upon the land, and these peoples that we found here to create something out of what was nothing. There you go. You can hop off that boat and make America great. Now, that's usually the story. Of course, like I said, we simplified it, but it's not too far off how we are presented with our American history. Of course, that story's a bit simplistic, a bit paternalistic, a bit patronizing, and more than a little bit wrong. Without getting into the weeds here, there's very credible research that shows just how advanced the uncivilized indigenous populations were, and it is evident to some historians that much of what we assume to be the fruits of the European Enlightenment, the intellectual birth, intellectual birth of so much vaunted progress, may very well have been fueled from the savage side of the pond, as opposed to born inside the skulls of Voltaire, Thomas Paine, and the other early thought leaders. Again, we're not going to get in the weeds about that either, but if you wish to delve deeper into this side of things, I directed the work of Jack Weatherford, a couple of his books, and particularly The Native Roots and Indian Givers, and perhaps most importantly, the late David Gravers, that just published as of this year, The Dawn of Everything, uh, subtitled A New History of Humanity. Now, that's an endlessly fascinating contrarian volume, and be advised, this in no way denigrates the contributions of uh, Thomas Paine, John Locke, Rousseau, etc. It, it rather points to the fact that these men, back then, studied what was coming from the new world, from the new land, and had the open-mindedness to allow it to shape their own thought, and then they put their pen or quills to paper and wrote, and then what uh, came out from those pens and quills, we assume uh, spawned what we wound up back over here when it might have already been here in the first place. Now, this very theme holds for the martial history that follows, and as far as, far as those volumes go that I've mentioned, I will link to the uh, uh, the blog version of this, so you can kind of also link to those uh, very self-same works we just discussed there if you want to delve deeper into it. All right. Now let's follow this. Perhaps more is birth here in the Americas than we credit hypothesis to focus on an early grappling and wrestling, uh, both as a sport and a way of warfare. Now keep in mind this holds for striking, weapons, culture, etc. All right. Right now we're just using grappling as a case point. That's, I'm not saying this is the only thing was here and then boxing came over pure here and then you know, no one had any idea what was going on. No, we're just sticking with grappling at the moment. Uh, we will delve into uh, striking the weapons another day. We simply set the stage here for killing the idea that all is wonderful was imported. Now, now by the way, 
Uh, well, no, we'll, we'll continue. I'll, I'll skip that portion for you right now. I'm going to leave something for all the paying cadre out there in the black box uh, sub subscription service, right? Not everything in the world's free, right? Now, uh, the uh, story of grappling is commonly assumed that grappling in the Americas developed along these lines. And yes, again, I am simplifying. One, the human animal has always scuffled. It is safe to assume that the indigenous peoples in the Americas also scuffled. Two, they likely scuffled without the educated or cultivated movement of those well-schooled in Great Britain or the European continent. Yeah, three cheers for imperialism, right? And uh, four, as, well, actually number three, as more and more immigrants arrive, some bring their grappling prowess and education with them, allowing it to permeate the culture, you know, particularly those wrestling immigrants from the regions of Cumberland, West Merlin, and Devonshire. And then gradually, the freestyle of grappling, as opposed to Greco-Roman or Colin Elbow, uh, takes root. And that, my friends, is the story of grappling in the Americas. Right. Of course, again, I simplify. And that's also how, often how you see the story uh, presented in many historical texts regarding grappling only. But... But what if, as in the case of some long-assumed Enlightenment traditions, such as the birth of American federalism and other across-the-pond imports, what if these were less imports than post-hoc adaptations that were themselves influenced by what they found already present here? Now, early chroniclers of indigenous peoples, those who actually visited or spent time with tribes, make numerous references in these early journals to the, quote, wrestling games and antics, unquote, of whatever tribe is being observed. These accounts primarily come from the observer's perspective, but occasionally we find tribal references inside the stories and legends of some people, in some cases pictograms of de uh, depictions of these said games and antics. I mean, there's a gorgeous, gorgeous parfleche with a native painting of Cheyenne games upon it that clearly, clearly depicts a competitive wrestling bout, and the postures, at least to my eyes, appear mighty informed as to grip, stance, and base. In other words, these, uh, these Cheyenne were not in need of continental edification. Now, these early chronicles also note that the styles amongst the tribes and, and the intent of the individual games amongst the tribes varied considerably between the tribes. Some variants uh, look like backhold wrestling, some collar and elbow, but most, most resemble a freestyle free-for-all in which the pen does not exist. But concession is king. Read that as the tap if without the tap. And that concession was often reached in ways that made many a chronicler pale. This is wrestling historian or wrestling boxing historian Graham Kent. Quote, the one quality that all forms had in common was a savagery and execution that typified all the pursuits of the warriors. Unquote. All right. Uh, and that really does embody when you really get into the details of uh, what was being used to get these concessions. Now, we must also note that early rough-and-tumble scrums observed in the Americas among the settlers. And I read this the white Anglos who were supposed to have brought this over with them. Well, these early scrums observed uh, more resembled this form, the indigenous form of grappling, than it did any imported sport version. Said the following is uh, taken from Whitman Mead's Travels in North America, which was uh, written in 1829, well, published in 1820, I'm sorry, 1820. The author refers to an incident he witnessed in 1817 while traveling through Georgia. So he's not even, uh, we've not even got really the true westward expansion yet. We're already seeing uh, th this influence of the indigenous style then, 1817. So such gatherings, according to Mead, occurred two to three times per week, two to three times per week. Imagine that, where folks would gather to fellowship, feast, drink, dance, gamble, exchange wares, and often following the ever-present horse race, a public challenge may be issued. Now, I offer that this is the same celebratory form of gathering where indigenous wrestling would occur, these, these continuous festivals, if you will. We don't even have these things anymore. We just kind of maybe meet friends for maybe to go to a movie and sit there and, you know, stare at a screen and not talk to each other for a while. But anyway, let's get to Mr. Meat. Quote, a ring is formed, free for anyone to enter and fight. After a few rounds, they generally clinch, throw down, bite, and gouge, and the conquered creeps out under the ring as a signal of his submission. Unquote. 
Now, Meade goes on to tell of meeting several past combatants who had noses bitten off, eyes gouged out, and more than a few had been castrated in such affairs, and apparently proudly, if you can imagine that. Now, Meade's observations mirror many indigenous wrestling match outcomes. So again, we must ask, which came first, the brutal vocabulary of the rough and tumble that is assumed to be informed by the immigrant population, or was it the other way around? Right, now let us go even earlier than Meade's account. The early English settlers in America and the French voyageurs, and I'm probably butchering that uh, pronunciation, but the French voyageurs were uh, hosses of rivermen up there. Uh, they're in Canada. So these early uh, uh, French settlers and English settlers in America made wrestling part and parcel of their own gatherings, very much in the indigenous gathering tradition. And they were elbow to elbow with the indigenous tribes. Each nationality brought its own form of grappling. Yes, but the Stayed or rather sedate uh, uh, Greco-Roman and the tame, in comparison, freestyle catch-as-catch-can was now considered boring to eyes that were used to witnessing the indigenous all-in affairs. These early settlers of a rough-and-ready spirit took to the rougher ways with alacrity. Of, of course, they retained the base of whatever art or sport they brought with them, but the focus became the faster, less restricted game they found already long existent on the new continent. Again, the question may be asked, why on earth would anyone prefer a more reckless or dangerous sport over the more protective version? Unquote. Now, that answer may lie outside the subject of wrestling or grappling itself. See, let's consider this. The, the Americas are unlike any other frontier land. The, there was uh, essentially already had populations, so-called, quote, civilized populations elsewhere in the world. And here we have a, basically an untamed, very large land. So the rough and ready spirits that uh, self-select to choose an untamed new world, uproot from where their civilization at the time, every, everything that was considered conveniences at that time, uh, as opposed to tame in comparison Europe, could also account for a population inside these self-same nomads that preferred the violent untamed. So again, we get to think about who uproots to come across to the unknown. And then amongst that, there's going to be an even larger, uh, uh, perhaps a smaller minority that's even crazier than all the crazy ones who had to come across. I'm going to give you an excerpt from, uh, this is Sebastian Younger's, uh, from his tremendous book, Tribe, On Hon Homecoming and Belonging. It's a, it's a wonderful book. It's personal memoir. It's a bit of anthropology. It's history, and it's explanatory of many things. Highly, highly recommend that book. And again, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes there. Take a look at it in the print version of it. So from Sebastian Younger's Tribe, On Homecoming and Belonging. This is a very important passage. Here we go. Quote, the proximity of these two cultures, immigrant and indigenous, over the course of many generations presented both sides with a stark choice about how to live. By the end of the 19th century, factories were being built in Chicago and slums were taking root in New York, while Indians fought with spears and tomahawks a thousand miles away. It may say something about human nature that a surprising number of Americans, mostly men, wound up joining Indian society rather than staying in their own. They emulated Indians, married them, were adopted by them, and on some occasions even fought alongside them. And the opposite almost never happened. Indians almost never ran away to join white society. Immigration always seemed to go from the civilized to the tribal, and it left Western thinkers flummoxed about how to explain such an apparent rejection of their society. Quote, when an Indian child has been brought up amongst us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, this is Benjamin Franklin, by the way, writing to a friend in 1753, back to Franklin, yet if he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble with him, there is no persuading him to ever return. 
Unquote from uh, Franklin back to Younger. On the other hand, Franklin continued, white captives who were liberated from the Indians were almost impossible to keep at home. Back to Franklin, quote, though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they became dis- they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. Unquote. That's all with Franklin and all with Younger at that point. So you've got people who were exposed to all the, the wonders of our life and our civilization, all of its stayed ways, and everyone prefers the rougher way. No one says that life was easier, but the life was vibrant. It was awake. Now, so in other words, with this preferred affiliation, we must ask again, which came first, the brutal vocabulary of the rough and tumble that is assumed to be informed by the immigrant population, or was it the other way around? If we accept that early grappling is less an import than a cross-pollination perhaps weighted towards the indigenous side of things, we must ask an additional question. If the causal error arrow is more towards the rougher side of things, how do we wind up with a narrative that says, well, we brought this form of wrestling across the pond with us, and that's how this board evolved? All right, let's, uh, to answer that, let's take a look at some called shade tree societies. In the untamed Americas, the unwanted, the venturesome, and the intrepid immigrated and made what they could of a wild land and wild ways. All right? So think of the immigrants. Again, the wild ones who came across the pond to here. Often unwanted. Sometimes they're kicked out. A veritable botany bay, as you find in uh, Australia. Now, once they establish any modicum of society in each frontier town moving forward, well, once you had these little outposts, the less intrepid, who didn't have the wherewithal to set up that town, well, they would follow these intrepid ones to assemble, where things were a bit tamed by these first comers. Then the next wave of latecomers, who were less intrepid than the second wave followed, and then so on and so forth, and a town grows, and eventually you get to, well, me and you and our 21st century toys and first world problems. Let's face it, we're probably listening to this in space technology and completely comfortable. We didn't have to build a campfire to sit around and listen to it and have it presented to us. We got all this convenience in the world. Let's face it, even 19th century shade tree society lines were far, far harder than our own. These people were far more robust. Now, many old timers considered a frontier town ruined when a shade tree society was formed. Now, what exactly is a shade tree society? Well, these were common once the more cultivated classes and their families arrived in rough-hewn towns, towns that were wrested from the wilderness. These towns, rather than being seen as the intrepid marbles that they were, well, they were seen as veritable shanties to be improved, hence shade tree societies. Trees must be planted along the boardwalks. Ordinances to paint and keep up appearances were installed. Unsavory elements, you know, read that the people who made the towns in the first place, they must be discouraged from residents. So gatherings must have decorum, and sports must be codified, and governing bodies... Uh, must abound as is only proper. In other words, civilization has arrived, and we tell the story about how we show up and make everything great. The cleaned-up story of Western expansion, and I say combat sports, arts included, is perhaps best expressed by author Louis L'Amour in the epigraph to his novel Bendigo Shafter. Quote, To the hard-shelled men who built with nerve and hand that which the soft-bellied latecomers call the Western myth. Unquote. So in other words, often our explanations are self-flattering overlays that seek to bury what was built by our so-called inferiors. All right, Ted, thus ends today's sermon. Obviously, if you're digging what you're hearing, please like, support, subscribe, share, review the podcast. Uh, if you want to go deeper, take there's over a thousand pages of martial research over at our blog, and I'll link to that as well. And if you're actually one of those hands-on sorts when you get in there and get get dirty and actually do these things instead of just hearing about them, I highly uh, I would direct you to take a look at ExtremeSelfProtection.com, where we run uh, the Black Box subscription service or just have training products and books. Buku there. I'm talking, there's hundreds of things to peer through right there. Other than that, though, thanks for putting your ear 
ears on and having to listen and spending this time with me with this uh, little bit of history that fascinates the hell out of me. Have a good one. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, ExtremeSelfProtection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. Mm